6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. Psalm continues, I made me great works. He talked about the enjoyment. Now we're going to talk about employment. He's going to talk about... uh, uh, the kind of pro- he got got himself excited about projects, hoping to discover something that would make life worth living. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water there with the wood that bringeth forth the trees. Can you imagine this guy? He was king, the most prosperous king the nation had ever had. Ever, or ever would have after that. Wealth was absolutely no constraint. And he obviously could undertake some pretty incredible works, including the temple. He's the guy that built the temple. Built me houses, built me vineyards, gardens, orchards. We can just imagine the scope of what he could undertake if he chose to. Plant all kinds of trees and fruits, maybe pools, bring forth the trees and so forth. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had a great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. You know, he really had workers. He, uh, uh, he could have added that he had drafted 30,000 Jewish men to work on projects. We find that in 1 Kings 5. And he had two kinds of slaves, by the way, those which he purchased and those that were born in his household. Now his father David conscripted strangers in the land for projects in 1 Chronicles 22. But Solomon even drafted his own people. And by the way, the people resented that. We'll encounter all that when we get to 1 Kings 12. You know, he gathered him silver and gold and so forth. He obviously accumulated wealth of all kinds, not just uh, gold and such, but flocks and herds and so on. Here we're listening to or reading the writings of the wealthiest, wisest man in the whole world, but he was unhappy because activity alone does not bring lasting pleasure. You know, this is a trap that so many of us fall into. We get involved in a career, a mammoth project. You know, I often think about Hollywood, for example, these people that will give of themselves for some movie. And I don't mean just the actors, but the writers and the skilled workmen and the thousands of artisans. And they plunge into this project for a year, maybe two. And what's over, it must be a strange, empty feeling. If you've ever been involved in a highly creative commitment, you know, that's draining. It's fun. It's involving. But it's just a project. In, in, in the business world, I frequently made the point validly that the relationships survive the projects. It's very important as you get into that kind of a world, those projects can be worth doing, but they're not an end in themselves. 
What you do carry away from this project are relationships. And some of those can be very life-enduring. Some of those can be very constructive for a long period of time. Psalm says, So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. That's quite a statement. His increase was greater than anyone else in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. Wow, what a statement. None of us, I don't think, can make that quite that statement because we have, we have a constraint of resources. Here's a guy who had no constraint of resources. Anything he could articulate, anything he could think of, anything he could imagine was his. They would see to it. Can you imagine? I mean, you know, we, we could have our fantasies and, say, and I have to believe it was, it'd be fun for a while. I tried to uh, find, I didn't get my chance to track down the quote. It's a famous quote from some guy on Wall Street, and I can't remember which one it was, for sure. He says, I've been rich and I've been poor. Rich is better. <laughs> He's famous for that. But uh, it's true. I think most of us could, most of us would have our fantasies. Boy, if we, if we won the lottery, boy, we could do X and Y and Z. We all have our little list, you know. But the reality is, that would probably, first of all, expose us to great danger. Great danger. Danger of idolatry. Coveting is idolatry. He said, I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labors, and this was my portion of all my labor. He liked what he was doing. It was fun. It wasn't like he was faced with an onerous task. He loved these projects, and yet he found them fundamentally Empty, ultimately. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Notice his perspective. I want to keep us, keep our, our focus on this. His perspective is under the sun, on the earth. He's not talking about heaven. He's not talking about an afterlife. He's not talking about spiritual things. He's talking about just the tangible realities in front of him. I looked on all the works. What it literally says in the Hebrew says, I turned to consider. See, he stopped in the middle of all the sensuous indulgence to take stock of the results. And he concluded that a certain amount of good can be gained from pleasure. It still yields no permanent gain. And you'll find this term all through the King James rendering, the vexation of the spirit. That's the way it's tra- the King James translators translated the Hebrew. Another way to translate it was probably closer, chasing after the wind. The vexation of the word, the ruach is the word of spirit, is also the word for wind. Just like pneuma in the Greek is, is spirit or, or air or whatever. This can be translated vexation of the spirit, but it also, the, the, the real thought there is it's like, you do all this and you're chasing after wind. When you're all through, there's nothing there. It's fun to chase it, maybe, but there's nothing there when you're through. It's sort of a graphic picture of effort expended but with no results that endure. He'll use that phrase nine times in the first half of the book. See, he had delight in the labor, and there's great joy in great projects, but what happens when it's finished? And uh, you quickly discover that the fun is in the chase, not the, not the winning. It's fun to win, and yet all the rest is really vanity. Henry Ward Beecher said, Success is full of promise 
until men get it. And then it is last year's nest from which the birds have flown. That was his expression. Now, don't get the impression that Solomon is, is, is condemning work itself. Because work is a blessing from God. You realize that Adam had work to do before the uh, fall? In Genesis 2.15, that's before the fall, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Adam had a, a work detail. Not all work was a result of sin. Uh, uh, you understand? That's, all, that's a common misconception. And, and Solomon himself, in the book of Proverbs, exalted diligence and condemned laziness. He exalted diligence and condemned laziness. And boy, that indicts us all, I'm sure, in our culture especially. Because he knew that any honest employment, any honest employment could be done to the glory of God. Any honest employment can be done to the glory of God. Paul says anything, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do. What's whatsoever? What does that include? Everything. Whatsoever ye do. Whether you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, it says do all to the glory of God. If what you're doing can't be done to the glory of God, you better take another look at it. By the way, all of this begins to give us a clue as to why there are so many achievers that are unhappy people. It's always disturbing to discover great tragedies either of divorce or of, of suicides or, or, or some other form of dissipation that happened to the winners. You can understand why it might happen to someone who is down. Business failed, he's bankrupt. You can understand where they might resort to some extreme measures of some kind, alcohol, drugs, or whatever. But what's shocking is to find people who are at the top of the heap, it would seem, who are, you discover are desperate people. Desperate people. The Mary Monroe's and whatever that you think, superficially, on the top of their world, be it what it is. And you discover behind the scenes they are miserable. How interesting. <laughs> Ambrose Bierce wrote a, a collection of, of, of very cynical definitions called the Devil's Dictionary. It's a very commonly well-known classic, I guess. Uh, I have a copy of it. Uh, he, he calls achievement the death of endeavor and the birth of disgust. <laughs> and, and it's funny because it's so accurate, it's so vivid, and yet it's not what you expect. See, the overachiever is someone that's always trying to escape from himself by becoming a workaholic. And of course, that only results in disappointment. And by the way, when workaholics retire, they got real problems because then they really feel useless and sometimes die of the decompression or lack of meaningful activity. It's really interesting to discover how many executives who endured all kinds of trials and when they retire, they often die in just a few years from the inactivity and the decompression and they, they can't adjust to the shift from the world that they had adopted. Well, anyway, Solomon, to make a long story short, he tests the life here and he says all is vanity in his heart. So now we get to the second section of this chapter in which he's going to consider wisdom and several of these things in the context of the fact that death is certain. The other 
coloration to the realities as you try to face reality is that death is certain. And uh, verse 12, I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly, and for what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath already been done? Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceive also that no one event happeneth to them all. Well, he says, I, I turned myself. What he means, I considered things from another viewpoint. Is really another way of saying the same thing. And uh, he, ma- he makes a comparison between wisdom and folly, and he obviously underscores the fact that wisdom has certain uses, and it keeps one from some unnecessary suffering. But uh, the gain is only temporary, is in, in Psalmist's point. For both the wise men and the fool die and are forgotten. That's really his point. See, what he did was to look at his wisdom, from verse 12 through 17 he'll do that, and then he'll look again at his wealth, from verses 18 to 23, in the light of the certainty of death. What good is it to be wise and wealthy if you're going to die anyway and leave everything behind? That's sort of the point. What good is it to be wise, to be wise and wealthy? You're going to leave it all behind anyway. The certainty of death theme will be frequently mentioned in Ecclesiastes all the way through the, the book. See, he couldn't very well avoid the subject if he's going to look at life under the sun because death is obviously uh, an obvious fact of life. It, uh, the French essayist Montaigne said, uh, philosophy is no other thing than for a man to prepare himself to death. <laughs> philosophy. I also reading unrelated to this. I was reading uh, in a university where they were screaming about how expensive the physics department, the science department is. It requires all this expensive equipment. Says the math department, all they need are pencils and paper and wastebaskets. And the philosophy department, they don't even need the wastebaskets. <laughs> Crack me up. It's a very subtle. I, I thought that was funny. <laughs> so if, if both the wise men and the fool die, what's the value of wisdom? Well, we can leave our wisdom for the guidance of the next generation, but how sure that are we that they will value it or even follow it? And that's got to be a frustration today because there's been a real, in our universities, a real divorcing our youth from the value of history. There's an incredible book you should be aware of by Alan Bloom, who wrote it after 30 years in, in, in a university environment in Chicago, I believe it was, University of Chicago. Alan Bloom wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. It was just his recollections of 30 years of uh, instructing on the college campuses, and I think he was probably the one that was shocked when it made the cover of the news magazines a few years ago. But it's a very interesting observation because our universities have chosen to disregard the value of, of the past, the classical concept of education was to study the great minds of the past in the, on the presumption that by understanding the great thinkers and the great doers of the past, one can be better prepared for the present and the future. But there's been a style on the American universities to disparage the relevance of the great thinkers of the past, and it has the, un, you know, this whole idea of value relativism. If your truth is as good as my truth, why study the past? As a result, the modern uh, university product has little awareness or understanding of the relevance of the great civilizations of the past, the great uh, thinkers of the questions, all the things that most universities would hold dear. It's interesting how the, the, this attempt to make 
students open has really resulted them being closed. And a very interesting, very interesting book. It's worth reading if you can lay your hands on a copy at the library, whatever. It's a, Alan Bloom, Closing the American Mind. See, another view is that only that person is prepared to live who is prepared to die. It's certainly true in a number of professions. The people who have reconciled themselves to that can move without fear, without constraint. And of course, we uh, always work this in whenever we do. I was, uh, uh, Hegel's famous quote, History teaches us that man learns nothing from history. Or George Santayana said a similar idea, and he that doesn't know the history is, death, is doomed to repeat it. And uh, how very true, how very true. I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly, for what can man do that cometh after the king? Yes, it is, even that which hath been already done. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. A wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. See, the wise man sees death coming and acts accordingly. The fool walks in darkness and is caught unprepared. Then I said in my heart, as it happened to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this is also vanity. There is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? as the fool. So he's saying both die and both are going to be forgotten. So that's somehow another form of emptiness here. It's interesting. Solomon's fame has remained. And yet, not the way he probably might have expected. It's interesting to contrast David and Solomon. If you and I were writing David's report card, it would, we'd probably give him some pretty rough grades. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer, a man of war. So we might be pretty hard on David, and yet God gives him a top report card because he repented. He said, there's a man after my own heart, God says. The only one that I, can, that I know of that God says that of. So here's a case where David we might be hard on and God extols. Solomon's the other way around. We think, well, here's Solomon, the wisest guy that ever lived. Brought more prosperity to the nation than they'd ever enjoyed. I mean, he, we would give him high marks. It's interesting that in the New Testament, Solomon, every time he's mentioned, it's disparagingly, sort of. The, lily, the lilies of the valleys. Even Solomon wasn't arrayed like them. So he's set up as a standard, but it's always a standard that something else excels. You see, notice that. It's very interesting. And Solomon does not get a high report card from God, if for no other reason than in his later years he becomes apostate. He was told not to multiply wives. 700 wives? 300 concubines? Which are not like whores. Many of us don't understand concubines. It's really a second-class wife kind of thing. They had certain legal rights. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now, most of those were not romances. They were political alliances for various reasons. But still, it ended up turning his heart. The foreign wives that were represented in that group ended up uh, making demands that Solomon acceded to, and pretty soon you had all kinds of idols in the temple area. And he went apostate. And, and uh, there is no uh, textual record that he ever repented. He may have but there's no record of it in the text. Therefore, 
Psalm says, I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of the spirit, or chasing after the wind, if you will. So he sort of is expressing the view that he hates to live, and, and yet he's afraid to die. That was the expression, that was the equivalent expression from Voltaire. He said something similar to that. And I think Solomon would agree with Voltaire in that sense. Life seemed irrational to Solomon. And yet it's still better than death. Now the healthy Christian, by the way, shouldn't be hating life. No matter how difficult the circumstances become. It is true that some of the great men of the Bible wanted to die. Job expresses that in chapter 3. And it's also chapters 3 to 7, in fact. Moses expressed that in Numbers 11. Elijah expressed that in 1 Kings 19. And Jonah expressed that in chapter 4. But these are very special instances and hardly examples for us to follow. And by the way, each one of these men very quickly changed their minds. The Christian should love life, seeking to get the most out of it for the glory of God. That's what's missing in this whole monologue by uh, Solomon. Peter says so in First First Peter chapter three verse ten, and he's quoting from Psalm thirty-four. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. But see, all of us we may uh, not enjoy everything about life, and we may not be able to explain everything about life, but we are to live by promises, not by explanations. And we know that our labor is not in vain for the Lord. Remember I mentioned 1 Corinthians 15, 58. We'll repeat that many times in this, in this review of Ecclesiastes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Well, from verse 18 on, he's now going to talk about the fact that you can't keep your wealth and so forth. He says, Yea, I hated all my labor which I have taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. Again, he, he uh, recognizes a day going to come when he's going to die, and he's going to leave everything to his successor. And all this fruits, all the diligent work, may go to someone who may be careless, or someone who's done nothing to deserve them. The Jews have an interesting proverb. They say, A shroud has no pockets. Isn't that colorful? A shroud has no pockets. In other words, you can't take it with you is the, is the thought behind that. And that sort of reminds you of the Lord's uh, warning in the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, or Paul's works in 1 Timothy 6. See, money is a medium of exchange, and unless it's spent, it can do little or nothing for you. Money takes its value in its motion, in its movement. It can buy goods. It can cause things to happen. It's not a static thing. It's a, it's a velocity thing. You can't eat money, but you can use it to buy food. It won't keep you warm, but it will purchase fuel. A Wall Street Journal writer said that uh, money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven and as a universal provider of everything except happiness. Well said. <laughs> I'm always amused by MasterCard's little slogan. I think it's well, very clever advertising. There's some things money can't buy, but for all the rest, there's MasterCard. <laughs> some are very, very clever. <laughs> But we need to remember that there's nothing wrong with wealth. We are to be stewards of that wealth. And God is the provider and the owner. And we simply have the privilege of enjoying it and using it for His glory. And one day we're going to have to give an account of what we've done with all of His gifts. 
One of the things that's, uh, I know Nan and I, is one of our most repeated prayers or comments throughout the day. Every good thing comes from the Lord. Every good thing comes from the Lord. And boy, are we staggered as we begin to realize how many things, good things, we take for granted. We're going to be held accountable for that. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy things, but we need to recognize that the yardstick is going to be, are we doing it for the glory of God? Now, I always have to work this in. They always say you can't take it with you. And that's not true. They always say you can't take it with you. Yes, you can. Did you know that? Luke 16 tells you how. Luke 16 has this weird parable of this unrighteous steward. This guy's about to get fired. He realizes he's going to get fired. So he runs around and writes down his his boss's receivables. He goes to everybody that owes his boss money and writes down the debts they owe. That's illegal. What's he doing, though? What he's doing, he's still the steward for a while, so he has the power to do that. So he does that so that when he is fired, he's going to have somebody that owes him a favor to go get another job. That's the story. And the Lord doesn't commend the morality of that steward. He does simply say that he's wiser than the sons of men. And what does he mean? He's using his present position to take care of his future situation. It's a weird parable because we get hit so much, we get all hung up in the fact that he's an unrighteous steward. That's not the point that the Lord is making. See, you can't take it with you. Yes, you can. You can send it up ahead. If you're going to certain foreign countries, that if you're going to visit those foreign countries, you want to change your currency to that country before you leave, before you go there. And uh, that's exactly what you want to do with heaven. How do you have your your opportunities, your your wealth here, set up ahead by using it for the Lord's work to build a credit that you can call upon later? That's that's the thought anyway. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.